Open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Week before last, we had our missionary last week, we started looking at this predictive principle. We are continuing our series on how to study the Bible, and so we're going to do a brief review so that we can get back tied in to where we were, and then we'll go into some new material. But look at Romans chapter 15, and look at verse 4. The Bible says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience, and look at what it says, and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Lord, please help us as we study your word, as we learn to study it. Help us to understand why it's so important. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, sometimes when we're doing these more teaching type of series, as opposed to a more devotional type of series, when you are in the middle of trouble, and, you know, we're going to learn about this predictive principle, we're going to look at five tests of a prophecy to see how do we understand whether or not this is an actual biblical prophecy? What does that look like? We're going to have some detail today. But if you're in the middle of trouble, how does this help you? How does, how does this, this do anything for you? I was reading a book this week. Edward F. Hills wrote a book called Believing Bible Study. And listen to what he said. This is kind of a long quote, so I put it on the uh, uh, screen for you. The man who is well pleased with himself with his prospects, and with his whole manner of life, will never read the Bible believingly. His entire outlook must be changed before believing Bible study becomes possible. For this reason, God often uses the hard experiences of life to prepare his children for believing Bible study. Bereavement, childlessness, loneliness, longings that have never been satisfied, ambitions that have never been fulfilled, vain regrets over lost opportunities, the severe limitations of poverty, the pain and weakness of sickness, and the approach of death. These are the things that bring men low. These are the harrows which God uses to soften hardened hearts. These are the hammers with which he is wont to bend proud necks and make men willing to read his holy book believingly. Reader, if you are perishing in the furnace of affliction or if you are walking in the darkness with no light, or if your heart is fretted with anxieties and corroding cares, or if your will is bound under wretched slavery to sinful lusts, or if your soul is chilled with the fear of death and the unknown, then the Bible is the book, the only book for you. Amen? It's so true. For the Bible will show you how your sins may be overcome by the power of Christ and how you may enter into eternal life through the door of hope and obtain your inheritance in the everlasting glory. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you understand why the Bible is there, when you really need it, well, then you can start to understand it better and better and better and find yourself in it. So let's look at this predictive principle and let's see how it can help us. Now, there is a distinction 
There is a difference between prophecy and prediction. When we think of Bible prophecy, we think of things about the future. But there is a difference. A prophet was essentially God's spokesman. And his sole mission was to speak the word of God and only the words which God gave him to speak. God said to Jonah, go and preach what I bid thee. That's what a prophet was. A prophet's job was to speak the word of God before it was written. That was the job of the prophet. Prophecy does not necessarily mean the unusual. It could just be declaring the word of God. A prophet is God's spokesman. He is not only a foreteller, but a foreteller of the word of God. And there's no office of the prophet in the church today. There is no office of the prophet in the church today as there was in the early church. I'm not going to tell you what the future holds. I wish I knew I would invest in the next big thing. But I don't have that ability. Wouldn't it be cool if you knew what the numbers on the lottery were going to be? See, some of you are evil. You're going to say yes. But anyway, let's, let's keep going. To the man who had this gift, God revealed his will and his word. We do not need the prophets as we have the word and will of God in the Bible. We have it right here. We no longer need prophets. Now, we need men to stand up in the prophetic spirit and proclaim what God has written, but there's not the office of the prophet any longer. It's not necessary because we have the Bible. No matter when, where, or how the message is given, God is the speaker. And since there is only one speaker, and since that speaker knows from the beginning what he is going to say, he can so shape the first utterances as to forecast everything that is to follow. Look at Isaiah chapter 46. Here's how God writes his book. Isaiah chapter 46. And look at verse 8. Now look at verse 9. Isaiah 46 and verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. So remember what we just looked at in Romans. That those things that are written aforetime are written for our learning so that we can have hope. But not only that, we can see God's hand in history. All right, look at verse 9 again. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. How is he going to demonstrate that there is none like him? Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Because God knew what he was going to say and God knows what he's going to do, God could 4,000 years ago write something down that will happen yet future. God knows what he's going to do. And God knew that when he began writing the book. He knows from the beginning what he is going to say. He can so shape the first utterances as to forecast everything that is to follow. He is able to do that. Now, this is all review. That's why we're going fast. So prophecy... And predictive prophecy. Prophecy is speaking forth the word of God. Predictive prophecy is speaking forth the word of God, which has to do with the future. All right? So here is what C.I. Schofield, some of you have a Schofield study Bible. He said, a prophet is a man whose function primarily is that of a revivalist and a patriot, speaking on behalf of God to the national conscience, and that would be the nation of Israel, striving to bring faith in Jehovah, purity of worship, and patriotism among the people. So that's what the prophet was. He was a national spokesman. So he would speak to the people from God or for God. That was his job. And he was calling the people back to God. 
Why did the prophets come to Israel? A prophet always came in a time of apostasy and declension. People were never happy to see the prophet coming. It was not a joyful thing. It was not a happy office. Whenever you find a prophet in Israel, you know there is something wrong. Interesting. What are the subjects that are covered by prophecy? So he would deal with issues in his own day, the moral condition of his own people in his own time. He was prophesying many times the 70-year Babylonian captivity and then the restoration after the captivity, and that's what Daniel 9.2 is about. Many prophecies about the first coming of the Messiah, and we'll look at that later on. And then the worldwide dispersion of Israel. Not only that, but the time of Jacob's trouble. That's how the Bible describes the seven-year tribulation period. Then the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Most of the Old Testament is about the millennial kingdom. About the Most of the Old Testament prophecies are not dealing with our time. They're not about the church age. They are about the kingdom that Jesus Christ is going to return. Now, this is new. This is for today. Was that a fast review? All right. Trying not to take up too much of your time today. This is so fun. So let's look at the criteria by which to test biblical prophecy. The first is the remoteness of time. We're going to explain all these. The remoteness of time. And Lord willing, I'll have all of this on a handout and I'll give it to you next week. The remoteness of time. Minuteness of detail. Very specific detail. Novelty of combination. What does that mean? There's going to be some new stuff that's introduced that has never been seen before. Novelty of, con- of, of combination. Then mystery of contradiction. Mystery of contradiction. Some of the prophecies were partially fulfilled and then ultimately fulfilled. And some of the prophecies, as we'll see, about one thing, it became very difficult for them to see what that would be. And then the clearness of forecast. The clearness of forecast. Where you can know very definitely whether or not this prophecy has been fulfilled. So, uh, how many of you know that God prophesied that Israel would be back in the land? A lot of people think that happened in 1948 or even earlier with the Balfour Declaration, but they're not back in the land. They're in a tiny portion of the land. That prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. Are you all following what I'm saying? So there will be a clearness of forecast that we will know when that prophecy is actually fulfilled. So let's let's break these down because you already have those remembered. Or you already have those memorized, right? You have a mem- Who has it? No? Okay. So let's see if we can flesh this out a little bit. What is the remoteness of time? So there could be no possibility on the part of the one who predicts it to bring a thing to pass. So if I predicted, I am predicting something today. I am predicting as a prophet that after the morning service, someone, a chosen one, will go pick up pizzas for the deacons meeting. And I can predict that. Why? Because I'm the one that's going to ask one of the deacons to go pick up the pizzas for the deacons meeting. That's not much of a prophecy, is it? Now, if I told you who was going to win the Super Bowl, that would be a pretty good prophecy. Right? Jay knows. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Cincinnati is going to win. So we'll find out. if Now, next Sunday, we're going to stone him to death if that has not proven to be true. Because that's the penalty for false prophets. All right. So, full confidence. That's right. Remoteness of time, so there could be no possibility on the part of the one who predicts it to bring a thing to pass. It is necessary that there be remoteness of time for the fulfillment of a prediction. So it's got to be far enough out to where I can't do it. 
The prophet can't do it. So remoteness of time. The prophecy must be uttered sufficiently before the time for it to come to pass so that the prophet cannot make it come to pass through his own power. And how many of you know God can do this? So this is where the prophecies in the Bible are so amazing. Remoteness of time. Secondly, minuteness of detail. The particulars of the prophecy should be so many and so minute that there could be no possibility of shrewd guesswork for the accuracy of the fulfillment. This is different than a fortune cookie. Right? You open up the fortune cookie. Um, Something surprising is in your future. That's not much of a prediction. Right? There's great trouble ahead of you. That's not much of a prediction. Why? Because there will be a surprise and there's going to be trouble. That's, that, that's not any kind of a prediction. You see what I'm saying? Minuteness of detail. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll get into some of those details. 33 prophecies were fulfilled within several hours at the crucifixion of Christ. 33. 33 specific details. We're going to look at some of those things. Then the novelty of combination. So the coronavirus was called a novel virus. They hadn't seen it before. It's something new. The novelty of combination. There should have been nothing in previous history which would make it possible to forecast a like event in the future. A virgin shall conceive. That had never happened before. Right? That's Isaiah 7.14. A virgin shall conceive. A very specific detail of something that had not happened in the past. There must be something new, something fresh, startling, original in the prediction of the met and the method of its fulfillment to prove divine intervention. So novelty of combination. Isn't this fun? These, this specific way that you can look. So here's what we're going to do. I'm defining these things. Then we're going to test it in the Bible to see whether or not it works. The mystery of contradiction. What is this talking about? There should be something in the prophecy when examined carefully, which is apparently contradictory and paradoxical. Right, something in the prophecy is. Uh, I don't know. That, 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 what, give me. Let me give you an example. An apparent contradiction that makes it impossible to understand the prediction fully until history has supplied the key. Oh, so that's what God meant when He said that. How about that? Jesus. How about the Messiah will reign and rule with a rod of iron, and the Messiah is going to die. If he dies, how's he going to reign? How's he going to conquer and win? Do you see that? That's why they had a problem. They had to say, "Well, he's not really going to die. It's going to the Messiah, and this person's going to be a different person." They had to try and find a way to explain it until Christ came and fulfilled every bit of it, because he said he would. How about the clearness of forecast? No ambiguity, no cloudiness of statement. There should be a clearness of forecast to make the meaning obvious. So, you know, you hear some, some weird fortune teller and they, they just make this, this gobbledygook. No, it's a very specific thing in the Bible. So let's look at an application of these predictive principles, okay? Let's look at these tests. So let's test the prophecies concerning Christ. So let's see if there's any detail here. He was to be the seed of woman, seed of Abraham, of the line of Isaac, House of Jacob, tribe of Judah, family of David, born of a virgin. Is that getting pretty specific? All right. There are the predictions of the, his very words from the cross, his working of miracles, the last days of his life, 
and being betrayed by his own. The selling of Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Do you think that those, that those Pharisees, when they paid Judas, that they were trying to fulfill Scripture? The exact amount? The 30 pieces of silver, details of the crucifixion, such as his death and burial in a rich man's grave, after his grave was appointed with wicked men. His intercession for transgressors, the third day resurrection, his incorruptible body, and the ascension into heaven. Remember? And we could break these down. Every one of these are prophesied in Scripture. Every one of these details. How about the remote? So let's look at it. Let's break these, these prophecies down, the remoteness of time. 400 years elapsed between the writing of the last book of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. So at least 400 years in advance. So that's, you know, Jamestown until now. Imagine somebody saying, in the year 2020, through great deception, a mentally deficient man will be appointed president with the most obnoxious, deplorable vice president in the history of all humanity. Imagine a specific prophecy. His son will be a cocaine addict with ties to China. I mean, that's specific. If 400 years ago, somebody had said those specific details, listen, what happened with Christ is no less specific than what I just said, and much more encouraging. (laughs) Besides this, some of the details written about him were written as long as 4,000 years B.C. Isn't that amazing? What a God. What a Bible. The remoteness of time. What about the minuteness of detail? There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Christ. Now, don't forget what we always say about this. For every one prophecy about his first coming, there are 11 prophecies about his second coming. And if God could fulfill 33 within a few hours, he can fulfill every one of these others in the future. That's the guarantee that he will. So there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Christ, and the details are very minute such as to have to do with the drink given to him on the cross and the gambling over a single garment of the Lord at the foot of the cross. The single garment, the actual drink that they would cast lots, that they would gamble for it, those specific details. Do you think those animals who were gambling for it were trying to fulfill Old Testament prophecy? Do you think they were? Those? How about what they said? How about the things that people would say as they walked by him on the cross? The very words were prophesied in the Old Testament. That's how specific, the minuteness of detail. How about the novelty of combination? We just mentioned this. There never was anything like this before. A human child who was also a divine son. Right? So you had the the mythologies of Hercules and that type of thing. And yet that was simply the the sons of God entering the daughters of men. That was the history of what happened in Genesis chapter 6. This, the one true God actually becoming a man, nobody had ever seen anything like that. In the Old Testament, so this right here, this is on these specific details, novelty of combination. For us, when we think of God as Father, that's like breathing, right? That's like knowing what water is. It's so familiar to us. But in the Old Testament, an individual relationship with God was absolutely unknown the Jew never called God Father. I, I heard uh, uh, Ben Shapiro, who's an Orthodox Jew, talking about this. This idea of, of 
God coming as the Messiah in the Old Testament. That's, we, that's not what we believe. The idea that you could know him, that's not what we believe. It's completely different. In the Old Testament, an individual relationship with God was absolutely unknown. The Jew never called God Father. Jesus introduced something new when, in the Lord's Prayer, he addressed God as Father. They had never heard that before, and it bothered them. Novelty. Then mysteries of contradiction. Prophets wrote of the suffering and glory of Christ. They couldn't understand it then. Can we look at that? Just let's, let's tie it together. I've shown you this a bunch of times, but let's look at it. 1 Peter chapter 1. Y'all doing okay this morning? 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's tie this in with what we read at the beginning of the message. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Look at this. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired, and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The sufferings. And the glory, the sufferings, and the glory, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So the angels didn't know this was going to happen. The prophets wrote it down, but they didn't understand it. They inquired of God, said, God, what is this? Well, that's not for you. Who's it for? It's for the people that hear these things preached with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. When was the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven? Pentecost. Everything changed at Pentecost. This stuff is for us. It was not for them who lived before Pentecost. And so what we have is that right to vision. We understand what happened. But until it happened, we couldn't really understand. And the people in the Old Testament, even the apostles, didn't understand those prophecies. Mysteries of contradiction. They couldn't understand it. Um, look at look at uh, Luke chapter 24. They couldn't understand it. Luke 24. Until after his resurrection. Verse 44. So Jesus, after his resurrection, he's met with the men on the Emmaus Road. Now he is meeting with his disciples. He's made them breakfast, verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. What, is, what has to be fulfilled? Prophecy. Prophecy has to be fulfilled. Which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding. They couldn't understand it before. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. And then he says, so go out and tell everybody this right now. Is that what he says? No. Verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. 
but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Why? Because that message isn't ready to be preached until the Holy Ghost is sent down from heaven. Is that what it says? It's exactly what happened. So now, how could he die and conquer? Mysteries of contradiction. What about clearness of forecast? Prophecy declares that Jesus must be born of some of the families of the earth. Now, would that be much of a prediction? There'll be a child born who will be human. Is that a, is that a difficult prediction? Okay, everybody, everybody, everybody with me? Prophecy declares that Jesus must be born of some of the families of earth. Every time a family of a certain line brought offspring into the world, God picked out one who would be in the line of Christ. He must be born in a certain place. Of the three known continents at that time, Africa, Asia, and Europe, Asia is chosen. Of the countries of Asia, God chose the small country, Syria. Of the three districts, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, Judea is taken. Out of the many small villages, the village of Bethlehem. Specific details. Specific details. He must be born at a certain time. It might be any century, any year. God did not tell Eve when this seed of woman would be born. God alone knew. And he foretold the exact year. Sir Robert Anderson, head of the Scotland Yard Detective Agency, was not a preacher, but a student of the Bible. He has figured out from prophecy that Christ came on the exact day of the year as prophesied. His, his Remember, we've looked at it. His triumphal entry was on the exact day that had been prophesied. The exact calendar day that had been prophesied. Specific details. In Genesis 49.10, the season is given. This is a prophecy uttered by the dying patriarch Jacob. He gave a prophecy which was true of each son and also true of the tribe which came from each son. God says these are true of the last days. Jacob said the scepter shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh come. Shiloh is the Old Testament name for Christ. When Christ came, we find that Judah was still in authority with a great deal of power in her hands, but her power was waning. So what happens is when we look at these distinctive principles, when we see the remoteness of time, when we see the uh, the apparent contradictions, the 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 this this novelty of of understanding, new ideas, the the details, every bit of it. That's what distinguishes Bible prophecy from everything else. And what happens is this predictive principle that gives me discernment. Biblical prophecy, when studied in context, it strengthens my faith. And that's why I always try and say, somebody says, you know, so this, is, this the, is this the mark of the beast? Is this what's happening? No. No. Do you know how I know that? I'm here. Mark of the beast doesn't take place until after the rapture. So, the vaccine or the vaccine mandates or whatever is not the mark of the beast. Amen. How many of you know Christians who say, well, this might be the mark of the beast? Have you heard somebody say that? Well, I have discernment. I know that that cannot be true because I'm here. That's one thing. And secondly, we can buy and sell without it. We can live without it. It's only 65% of the population has been vaccinated. The rest, 35% of the population has not died. So it is not, but I can tell you this. It's a world system that's being set up to receive the mark. No doubt about that. Do you see how prophecy helps us? We shouldn't be surprised when this happens. 
We should be saying, man, God's true. What God said is true. So biblical prophecy, when studied in context, strengthens my faith. And I am able to see when a teacher is mishandling the Word of God. When a teacher is mishandling the Word of God. So somebody will say, do you think so-and-so is the Antichrist? Who in the world right now, be honest, who in the world right now is popular enough to be worshipped by everyone on the planet? Anyone that you can name, half the people hate him. At least in the United States. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if I start telling you so-and-so is the Antichrist, you know, Oprah Winfrey is the Antichrist, whatever. If I make it up, Joe Rogan is the Antichrist. As soon as I start naming somebody like that, you know that I'm a false teacher. Because the Antichrist, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because of the minuteness of detail, the remoteness of time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So, look at what the Bible says in verse 1. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And look at what it says. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So he has to be revealed. When that, when that Antichrist is revealed, I won't have to tell you who he is. Everyone in the world will know who he is. You see? And so when someone comes along and says, well, I think that Bill Gates is the Antichrist. I, 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 think, it, I think it's Bill. Well, I can say, well, God hasn't revealed that to the whole world yet. So you cannot make a definitive statement like that. Do you see? The predictive principle, it gives us discernment. I am able to see when a teacher is mishandling the Word of God. What a book. What a book. And let me just finish with this. Um. When you rightly divide the word of truth, there's a process here. So number one, you begin by believing every word of God. Every word of God is pure. Psalm 119, thy word is true from the beginning. It's true. So Genesis 1.1 is true. Right? Thy word is true from the beginning. And then I understand that God not only inspired those words, the Bible says in Job 32.8, there is a spirit in a man... And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. There is a spirit in a man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. So inspiration is God giving understanding to the mind of man. And then in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 21, the Bible says that God put his very words in Isaiah's mouth. And those words will last forever. That's what Isaiah 59 verse 21 says. So when I understand that the word is true from the beginning, 
that inspiration is God giving those very words, putting those words in the mouth of the man. And then we looked at Jeremiah chapter 36 and verse 17. Uh, Jeremiah 36, 17, they said, how in the world did you, they, they had read the Bible to the king and to his men. And they said to Jehudi, uh, Jeremiah's scribe, they said, how did this work? He said, Jeremiah spoke them with his mouth and I wrote all the words down in a book with ink. Jeremiah 36, 17, that's how it worked. So when I understand God put the, the words into the mouth of men and then God had those words written down and then according to Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver in a, uh, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. When I understand that word generation in the Bible is dealing with that seed, with those people. And Isaiah 59, 21 says that he's going to preserve that word and he's going to preserve that seed. And then I see in, in chapter, in, in Psalm 12, he's going to preserve them from this generation. That is, he's going to preserve the Jews and the words. And then when you get to Romans chapter 9, and he says, how are the, or Romans chapter 3, how are the, the, the Jews better? He says, much in every way, for unto them were committed the oracles of God. God gave the Jews the words. And then he said he would preserve those very words. They would last forever. So when I understand that those very words were given to God, they're all true from the beginning. I believe every one of them, God preserved all of those words. He preserved them through manuscripts. He preserved them through different languages. He preserved them for generations and generations. He used the Jews in the Old Testament, Old Testament to preserve his words. And then in the New Testament, he has used the priesthood of the believer, saved people to preserve those words all the way through history so that they are there. They've been translated. I can hold them in my hands. When I believe every word and I believe it and take it literally that God said exactly what he wanted to say, then I have to rightly divide the word of truth. When I do that, I start to see these prophecies. These prophecies, they, there's remoteness of time, there's minuteness of detail, there is a, a, a novelty of, of consequences and ideas. All of these things are put together. What happens when I do it that way? All of a sudden, I understand that salvation is by grace through faith. I understand that for a brief period of time, God has chosen to work through Gentiles in the New Testament church. I understand that that church is supposed to be made up of born-again people, people who've placed their faith and trust in Christ alone for their eternal life. I understand that there's going to come a time when that ends, when the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And what's going to happen then is the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet him in the clouds. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So what's going to happen is we have this, this parenthesis of time, this limited period of time to function as a church. Jesus Christ is going to come back. We are going to meet him in the clouds. There's going to be that seven years of trouble, of Jacob's trouble on this earth. And then he's going to return and rule and reign. Those are specific, prophetic details that have proven to be true. Everything that he promised has happened. God promised that to the church at Ephesus that they were going to leave his first love, their first love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my words. And so in that first church in the Ephesus, that first church period, they began adding words and phrases and concepts to the Bible. And they left their first love. 
That next church, boy, it was just, it was just persecution. That church at Smyrna, it was just persecution, persecution. But in that time, there are people that rose up and said, well, I guess since Israel replaced, since Israel rejected God, that now the church has replaced Israel. And Jesus called that the synagogue of Satan. You have those that say they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And from that, that comes, why don't, why won't Jews believe now? Because during that time, there rose up a group of people that would kill Jews because they had killed Jesus and they called themselves Christians. You go into Pergamos and you have Constantine who marries church and state. And now you have this pagan Roman system mixed with religion and it leads to a horrible persecution. The, the, the Bible says in, in that Smyrna period, you have 10 days of trouble and under Diocletian, there was 10 specific periods of persecution. Then coming out of that, you had the traitors, the people that had given up the scriptures to go along with the Roman government under Diocletian, and they become the head of the church under Constantine. And that leads you to the dark ages. You come into this Nicolaitan priesthood where only a small group of people are allowed to have the Bible. And the Bible says, the entrance of thy word giveth light. But the, but the Bible was removed from the people. So you, into the, the, you come into this dark ages. You go into this Thyatira period. And God says, I'll kill all her children with death. And half the population of the world dies. And they don't name children until they're 12 or 13 because they're going to die. It's terrible. Then, at the end of that time, John Wycliffe comes along. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. And he comes along. You enter into this Sardis period. The Bible gets back into the hands of the people. You have the Reformation takes place. But in spite of the Reformers and the the evil that the Reformers did in murdering and killing and all of those things, the Bible got in the hands of the people. And all of a sudden, you have that Philadelphia period. And he said, I've set before thee an open door which no man can shut because thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. And you have this time where people are just believing the Bible and preaching it for 300 years from the Reformation until the end of the 19th century. And then this great corruption of theology comes up, the undermining of the word of God, and that door is closed. And in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is outside of the church. So when you believe the Bible, when you look at the specificity of those prophecies. When you look at the belief in the very words, and then from this point in history, we look back and we say, oh my goodness, every detail that he prophesied has come true. What has he prophesied that hasn't come true yet? I need to watch. I need to watch. I loved what Brother Mail said last week. He didn't tell us to wait. He told us to watch. That's what we do. See, the Bible is true. Every word of God is true. And we look at how he gave it to us, how he said he would keep it, what we are to do with it. We have a job to do. Amen? And he uses hurt people to do it. Remember where we started? The Bible's not for proud people. What's he do? God resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. What humbles us? Trouble. Amen? You guys play basketball. You ever been on a fast break? Man, I'm wide open. I got this. Brick. Right? It's so important that we understand. We don't have it. We've not arrived. As Paul said, I've not apprehended. But what do I do? 
I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We have a job to do, folks. Understanding this predictive principle, men, now I know what my job is. And I can also have that discernment. What a book. Isn't God's word amazing? Let's all stand together. You know, the first thing that you need to know, man, we've gone through a bunch of details tonight or this morning. The first thing that you need to know is Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for your eternal life, predictive principle is not really very important to you other than the one that says you're going to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. I deserve to go there. The only reason I'm not is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I just asked him to save me. I repented of my sins and acknowledged him as my Lord. And that's what you need to do too if you've never done it. Amen? That's what we need. And the rest of us, we need to realize that we have a purpose. And we've got this amazing book that is so much more amazing. You know, some of you will just take it and throw it on the dash of your car. You'll never see it again until next week. Let's dive into it. Let's learn it. Amen?